We're continuing to talk about the most significant event in human history. John 19. We're going to start for context's sake. We covered some of these verses last week. We're going to start at verse 17. So John chapter 19, verse 17. And we will read, and he, he being Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Verse 23, and this is where we'll start our study today. Then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also a tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Then the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Father in heaven, we come to you today humbled, by this display of love recorded for us that on a day like today with all of the things going on in this world, in our lives, we can be reminded of a great love lavished upon us. We pray if we've somehow forgotten that, that in this place today we would remember that, be inspired by it, touched by it, and that we would desire to go out and touch others with it by the power of your spirit. So give us understanding, please, in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible has many challenging stories. God's people are given many challenging commands, but perhaps there is no greater challenge than the one that we see in Genesis given to a man at first named Abram. Abram was called the Blessed Father. 
And Abram was told in Genesis chapter 12, around the age of 70, to leave his father's house, go to the land that God would show him. That in and of itself, hey, leave your comfort zone, leave everything that you love, leave everything that you're comfortable with, and go to the place that I'm going to show you. So in other words, there's not a destination that's picked out. There's no certain future. It's just like, leave and trust me. And that would be a hard command for any of us, correct? So to just leave and trust me, and that's a hard command in and of itself. But in his 70s, Abram and his wife Sarai are given a promise. And that promise is that they're going to have a son. And that son, well, is going to be the offspring through which God is going to bless Abraham and call him not Abram anymore, but now Abraham, the father of many nations. So Abraham is given this amazing promise, and he has to wait decades for the fulfillment of this promise, for this son to come into the world. But when we talk about difficult commands, perhaps the most disturbing, challenging, crazy command that we see given in the Bible is what God tells Abraham later in the book of Genesis when he says, Abraham, take your son, take your only son, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice atop of Mount Moriah. Now, can you imagine this, that Abraham wakes up early, he doesn't question God, he just says, okay, I'm going to do this. He takes his son, and for three days they're walking, for three days as if his son is going to have to be sacrificed, for three days, three is always the number of God getting his point across, for three days he takes his son, and when they get up to the top of the mountain, it's believed that Isaac is not a little boy at this point because he's carrying the firewood, and for many other reasons, it's believed that Isaac is probably more in his 20s, possibly even in his 30s, when Isaac is brought up to that mountain by his father, and all the preparations are made, and Isaac finally looks at Dad and says, uh, Dad, <laughs> BTW, uh, where is the sacrifice? And do you remember what Abraham says? He says, my God will provide the sacrifice. And as Abraham is ready, and this is unthinkable to us, as Abraham is ready to lift the knife on his son, the angel of the Lord stops him and he says, no, 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 do not harm the lad. Don't touch him. Don't touch him. You passed the test, Abraham. God's seen that there's nothing that you're willing to withhold from him, and there was a ram in the thicket, and God had provided the sacrifice and we take a look at that and say, what kind of father would sacrifice his son? What kind of a father would sacrifice his son? And then we remember the sacrifice that would be made, listen church, on that same mountain. It's believed Mount Moriah would later become the temple mount where Jesus was crucified. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, God would not spare his son, and the reason that we're told that he did not spare his son was because he loved us. You see, we look at the story of Abraham and we say, what kind of craziness is this? And I think that that's there intentionally for people like us that say, okay, I don't get that, I don't get that, but wait a second, God did that for me? He did that for me, and I don't know about you, but when I understand the immensity of that sacrifice and that challenge and that love, it does something to my heart. It fills my heart. 
because I realized that at that moment when God made that sacrifice, there's nothing he withhold so that he could, there's nothing he would withhold just so that he could have relationship with us. And that's why this is the most significant event in human history. And that's why when we look at this cross, this cross changes everything. Everything we think we know, every situation, every trial, every circumstance, that when we finally go to the foot of that cross and we remember that act of love, well, that changes our eternity and it changes right here, right now, the way that we see everything. Because when we look through the lens of history, we realize at all times that it's his story. And we consider now, when I look at that cross, the part he's called us to play in it. And so when we take a look at these events, the way that they're unfolding, the human cruelty and putting the creator of the world on a cross in the darkest moment in human history, well, we're going to take a look today at five ways, five reasons that the cross changes everything for us. Five reasons that the cross changes everything for us. Five reasons that it makes all the difference in the world. The cross makes all the difference in the world. So we look at chapter 19, and we go back to our starting verse, verse 23. It says here, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now, this was a common practice of the soldiers. This was a common practice. It was kind of like, well, they would divide the spoils. And, what you know, you think, what, what got the soldiers to this point? They're playing a game while the man is hanging there crucified, while his mother is there, while his friends are there mourning and grieving and struggling, and they're playing games. They're playing games. It says that they would divide the garments, but there was also a tunic, and so somebody got the idea of saying so that Scripture could be fulfilled, and don't forget that because we're going to get back to that later, so that Scripture could be fulfilled saying, okay, there was a tunic, and this was the fulfilling of Scripture that they were going to gamble for his tunic. It says, they divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. What were they doing? They were playing games. While the Savior of the world hung on a cross. Let me ask you something. Have things in your life happened that have desensitized you? Have you seen so much ugliness, maybe so much death? I remember working on the hospice unit. There was one day... I had six patients and five of them died. And it almost became the running joke. Well, John just lost another one. Well, there's another one, John. Well, I guess you have the kiss of death on you today. And that does something to someone. There's something that goes off and there's something that becomes callous and there's something that starts to develop these mechanisms to, to start coping with things, to start coping with the hurt and to start coping with the pain. And so you can imagine that these guys probably just started out doing their job. Okay, put this man on a cross, nail him to the cross. But then they started enjoying their work. Then they started just killing time. And that brings us to our first point today. See, the cross reminds us that life is a war and not a game. That life is a war and not a game. See, sometimes we get caught up in what they call the game of life. I've even heard therapists say, well, you have to make sure that you treat life like a game. Really? Okay, so let me see if I understand this right. So I got to notice that I'm losing my house. Okay, this is just like Monopoly. 
Is that what it's supposed to be like? Or the cop pulls you over. Okay, this is like red light, green light, this one. Or if you're going in for surgery, well, maybe that game Operation, all right? Have you ever played that game with the little tweezers and the little silly-looking guy with the big red nose, and you're trying to extract the parts, and every time that you try to hit the, take the part out and you hit the side of it, what does it do? You, you know, you, you get shocked, right? Now, this isn't a game. This is a war. This is a war. It disturbs me this part of the year because... One of the local party stores runs a commercial. They run an ad. And at the end of the ad, encouraging, you know, the Halloween costumes and all that, at the very end, there's this cute little baby dressed up as Satan. All right, you've got this cute little baby dressed up as the most evil being in the entire universe that has wrecked havoc, that has destroyed, that has brought hell on earth. And here's my little baby dressed up as Satan. All right, and we minimize it and we reduce it because I think we sometimes convince ourselves that, you know what, I, I don't have to be worried about that. But if you really knew you were in a war, if you knew you were in a war, would you fight differently? If we honestly believed that every day that there was an enemy that was coming at us to steal, kill, and destroy, if we really believed that here and here, and we knew that he was out to ruin our reputation, if he was out to take our soul, if we really understood that... Well, we fight differently. And that's why the cross. That's why we call this in the name of love, because in the name of love, Jesus hung on that cross so that we could understand, listen, this isn't a game. It's not a game. But sometimes we're just like the soldiers. Jesus went through the sacrifice, and we're sitting there, and, and, and there are people out there that are dying that don't know the truth of what Jesus did on the cross, and we take it for granted day by day, and the choices that we make say, hey, is this a game, or, or is this the war? And then somebody will come to me, and they'll say, well, Pastor John, you're taking this too seriously. You're taking this whole Jesus thing too seriously. Oh, when I first changed professions from nursing, and, and I started making decisions to come this way, it's like you're going to church how many times a week? What are you doing? Don't you think you're going a little too far with this? Why? Because I'm going to a Bible study? He died on a cross for me. And one church we were at, I remember that when I was messing around with the piano and leading worship, that the leader of the church, one of the leaders, came up and said, listen, with the worship today, make sure you keep it under 12 minutes. I said... And I got very offended. And I said, why? Is it because people have to get to Cracker Barrel on time that we're going to sacrifice the worship in our church? That I can't go 15 minutes or 18 minutes? You're going to, kind of like the Academy Awards, when a speech goes on too long, you're going to take the hook and you're going to yank me off? I mean, what are we doing? Right now, in this church, at this moment, you're doing the thing that you were made for. You're here to worship God and seek God, and these are the things that we're going to be doing for all of eternity. Get used to it. Hope you're enjoying it. Hope you're enjoying it. Why? Because when we take a look at this life, the enemy would convince us that it's all about the here and now. All about the here and now. It's all about the pursuit of the things of this world. Why are we so serious? Here's why. Because every day, the enemy is taking more lives to the disease of addiction. 
Every day, families are getting crushed. Every day, there are acts of, that are heinous that are bringing us to our knees. We were crushed this week. We were crushed when we read that story coming out of Texas. 26 deaths. 26 people. And supposedly, he went up and down the aisle. He went up and down the aisle looking for babies that were alive. What kind of sickness and ugliness is this? Do you think that this is a game? No. It's a war. Pastor, this one's going to be heavy-handed today. I hope not, but I hope that it refocuses us always because this is serious. Could have been us. By the grace of God, we're still here at this moment. And as long as by the grace of God we're still here, we're still in a war, and there's still a message to be put forth. So we're here and we are on mission. I understand this, is that every day that I get my son dressed up and I send him to school, that there are predators out there looking to hurt children. You know that when you go to a local halfway house, you know that there are drug dealers that know exactly where the houses are, and they target them. They're intentional about it. They're oh so intentional, and so what we have to do is we have to understand, we have to go to that cross, and when, when I go to that cross, I'm reminded that the Savior of the world became a man, overcame temptation so that we could have victory, so that we could have victory, not to be taken like a game. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Man, this has got to be like an Italian family. If it was an Italian family, it would be Marie, Marie, and Marie. How you doing? All right, it would be Marie, 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 and, and then there's Johnny. All right? So we got Marie, 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 and then we got Johnny at the foot of the cross, okay? And when Jesus therefore saw his mother, now, now therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Stop right there. The man that refers himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved is believed to be John, the writer of the book, the writer of this gospel. And somewhere in the writing of this book, he started, stopped referring to himself as John and started referring to himself, and there was no mistake about this, in chapter 13, he starts referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And why is that significant? Because that's the night, if you remember this, when, when John records chapter 13, he, it's the beginning of, of what we call passion. It says, now therefore the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In other words, the things that John saw from chapter 13 at the washing of the feet to the point where Jesus goes on the cross, John knew one thing. You would do well to know it also. Jesus loves you. Are you able to refer to yourself because you know that you know that you know that you are the disciple whom Jesus loved? And what does that love do to someone's heart when you realize that what was done on this cross was done on your behalf? That's how much he loved you. I had a game that I used to play with my grandmother. And we would say, I love you more than you love me. And then I'd start out like this. 
How much do you love me, Grandma? Oh, I love you more than that. I love you like this. Oh, no, no, Grandma, I love you like this. And then finally, one of us will get to the point where we went like this. That's how much he loved you. That's how much he loved you. Because at the cross, think about what he's doing here. What is he doing? He's saying, listen, he's calling them over, and he's saying, woman, behold your son. In other words, Mary, mom, this is John. He's going to take care of you. John, take care of my mother. And he's looking out for someone else. And it brings us to the second point. See, the cross is the difference between being others-centered and being self-centered. Which are you? It's the difference between being others-centered and self-centered when we look at the cross and what Jesus is doing on the cross. Everything about the cross of Jesus Christ is others-centered when we have a tendency to be self-centered. In my mid-20s, self-centered brother. Okay, Living with a friend for the first time in New York City. As we're living in New York City, he worked during the day. I worked at night. 11.30, I come into a one-bedroom apartment, and at 11.30 at night, here's what I'm doing. I come home, and I need to unwind a little bit. So I'm frying up pork chops at 11.30 at night, and I'm not doing it quiet. I'm frying up pork chops, and I got the honeymooners on. All right, And you can't watch the honeymooners on low. You know that, right? You can't watch the honeymooners on low. So he's saying, Alice, one of these days, Alice. You can't watch that. So I've got that blaring in the apartment. And this guy, oh, he was patient with me for a couple of weeks. But soon it became like a war of the worlds because I was selfish. I wasn't thinking about anybody else. Many years later, when I was working with kids in, in the cancer ward at Sloan Kettering, I'll never forget a 12-year-old named John. And this 12-year-old at the end of his life called me over and he said, you know, John, um, I'm worried about my mom. Who's going to take care of her when I'm gone? 12 years old. And I couldn't see it now, but I sure, I couldn't see it then, but I surely see it now. What a Christ-like love that was for that young man to say, listen, I'm more worried about what's going to happen to my mother than the fact that in a few days I'm going to be taking my last breath on this earth. We have a tendency to make even the tragedies in this world about us. We become me monsters. Happens in school all the time. It's like a, you know, the, uh, you know, somebody will pass away. Saw this happen at school that a, a young man passed away that he was like kind of an outcast and the next day in school, uh, the ones that were getting all the hugs were the cheerleaders. <laughs> this is so terrible. What happened here? What happened? They didn't even know the guy. But we have a tendency to make the challenging situations about me. Right? Now, it's one thing for us to take a look and take a look and to say, well, this person has a need and to meet that need. But it's another thing to be going through your own challenges and your own suffering. And as you're going through it, you're saying, okay, what can I do to serve you? What can I do to help you? That's something different entirely. That's something that can only be empowered by Christ. We're called to be other-centered. And if ever, ever there was a question about that, all we have to do is go to the foot of the cross because there is nothing more other-centered than the cross of Jesus Christ. As they're playing games, as they're gambling for his tunic, in excruciating pain. John, take care of my mom. Are you taking care of others? 
Philippians 2, as Paul's in prison, one of the things he's telling us to do is to have that mind which was in Christ. And part of that looks like this. It says, listen, take care of each other's needs. Esteem each other as better than yourselves. Look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. This is something so very Christ-like to take a look at what others are going through and saying, hey, I know that I'm battling. I know that I'm going through it. I know that I don't feel like taking another step. But you know what? I see a need there, and by the power of Jesus Christ, that's something that only the cross can empower, that kind of love. Let me ask you, do you know the needs of the person next to you? Can I be honest? You won't know their needs until you know their name. Get to know the people that are around you. All right, if we want to change the world, church, let's start meeting each other's needs and loving each other in a way that is so uncommon. Do you know what people in this room need prayer for? I'm blessed to be the pastor, and I know most of you. I know some of the prayer requests and the struggles in your life, but I, 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 could, I could do better at this. Maybe we could all do better at this, getting to know each other, strike up a conversation with someone that you don't know. And as you're getting to know that person, seeing what that person's deep needs are and how God is desiring for maybe for us to pray for them, even to just pray for someone, do you know how much that means sometimes? For somebody to take you around and say, listen, you look like you're struggling today. Come on, let's pray. Wherever you're at, you can do that. You can do that. So the cross reminds us to be other-centered in a world that is very self-centered. That's the second point. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Do you understand that they didn't take his life? This is the reason he came. He came to give up his life for you. So it wasn't done until he said it was over. But it says here is that knowing that all things were now accomplished, the job is now done. Sometimes I look at my son and he cleans his room the way that I clean my room. Okay? So that if somebody were to say, I, I, was, sweeping under the, I was sweeping under the living room table the other day, and Tiffany went behind me with a mop, and she said, I thought you, I thought you like, swept this. I did. I did sweep it. She said, well, you missed that. And then you missed that. I mean, she was 100% right. I had not finished the job. I was not thorough about it. Well, a couple of days later, I go to my son, and I look at his room. I said, John, John, I told you to clean the room. And all I could think of was the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, the little boy blue and the man in the moon. All right, he was doing everything that his father was doing. He was doing exactly what he saw dad doing. All right, can I tell you one thing? Is that is that when Jesus says it is finished, it is finished. It's over when he says it. They don't take his life. He gave up his life, and he gave up his life for you. There's a story about a man named Cliff Young. And Cliff ran in this uh, endurance race. It's considered to be the world's toughest, most brutal ultramarathon. It's a 543.7-mile race from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. In 1983, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney. And this man walks up to the counter to sign up for the race. 
Most of his teeth are missing. He's a little overweight. He's 61 years old. He's a potato farmer and a sheep herder and a big, a big burly guy wearing uh, overalls and wearing galoshes over his work shoes. <laughs> and he requested a number at the table, and everybody laughed. How is he going to run this race? There is no way that this man is going to be able to run this race. What they didn't know was that this man, Cliff Young, he grew up on a farm, and there were no horses, no four-wheel drives. He would round up 2,000 sheep over 2,000 acres, and it would take him two or three days straight to do it. And so he came and he signed up for this race, and he was given the number, number 64. And everybody's looking at him as you have these runners, you know, and these guys are cut, and they're ready to run this race. And then here you've got the potato farmer, Cliff Young. And now the gun sounds, and you've got these guys, and they're starting off fairly brisk. And everybody knows how to run this race. Okay, what you do is you run 18 hours, you sleep six hours, and you do this for like five days in a row, but not Cliff Young. Nobody told Cliff Young the rules. And so he just starts shuffling, shuffling from the very beginning. He's shuffling along, shuffling along. Everybody's saying, stop this race. This is crazy. This man is going to drop dead. He's going to get hurt. Well, let me tell you something. Five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, he won the race, broke the record, and the nearest runner behind him was nine hours and 56 minutes behind. Nine hours and 56 minutes behind. Everybody knew how to run the race until Cliff Young had run it. And then when Cliff Young had run it, now you had world-class runners, professionals that were looking and they were trying to say, okay, well, what did he do? And it changed the way that everybody ran the race because of the way that he finished. The way that he finished showed them that they could finish differently. And so when we take a look at the cross of Jesus Christ, ch church, this is the lesson for us. Whatever it is that you think that you're struggling through or that you're battling, that there's a cross that stands over history that says, listen, Jesus said it is finished. When he said it was finished, it was done. So whatever situation that you're in, it is not done until Jesus says it is finished. And when he says it's finished, guess what? It is finished. But it is finished in a way that's not only going to glorify him, but the Bible tells us that all things will work together for those that love him. So when it's finished, when it's all been said and done, the way that it plays out, the way that he rolls, is simply like this. We go to the cross, and when we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, we're doing the thing that we were meant to do. When we're struggling, we look right back up at that cross. And when we're struggling, that's the moment when we're looking up at the cross that we remember who he is, who we are to him, how much he loved us, how far he went for us. We're reminded of who we are, where we came from, and we're reminded of where we're going. Because he finished the job for us on that cross. That's why Paul from a prison cell can write these words from a prison cell that says, oh, please rescue me. Please help me. Get me out of this cell. Please plan a jailbreak. No. What does he say? I've learned how to be content in every circumstance because I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. 
That's the cross. In the name of love, what happens is he went to that cross. He said, it is finished so that we can finish well. There's no reason for anybody in this room, no matter where you've been or what got you here, and you said, you know what, I've had a tough going, and I just want to finish well. You can. You can. That's why we're here so that we can get a word from the Lord, so that he can encourage our hearts like no one else can encourage our hearts. The one that says it is finished. Now, quite honestly, if you take a look at Jesus' life, you take a look and you say, you know what? Every part of his life, he was doing something that speaks into our lives. Every temptation he goes through, every healing he performs is something that you and I can take a look at as we read the Gospels and we can say, wow. Wow, that same power that was in Jesus is in us. Isn't that crazy? The same power that was in Jesus Christ is in you. Bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. They didn't take his life. He gave it up. Verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For those things that were done, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Stop right there. The cross reminds us of this. The cross reminds us that God wins the war even when Satan seems to win a victory. Even when Satan seems to be winning. Have you had those moments in your life where it's like the enemy's winning? The enemy's winning. You see things in this world, and it's like the enemy's winning. The enemy's winning. Is God still there? Is he still in control? Does he still care? The answer is yes, and here's how we know that. As you're looking at what happens to Jesus, when we first started reading today, when they were gambling over his clothes, John wants you to know, way back in verse 24, that this was the fulfillment of Scripture. That they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So what was happening was that God's plan was working itself out. His plan was being fulfilled despite the fact that it looked contrary. And now what happens is that they pierce his side. He's dead. It appears that the enemy's won. And yet John wants to make sure in verse 36 and 37 that you know that this was done. Scripture was being fulfilled. This went exactly, listen, This went exactly the way that God had planned it. Nobody got anything past God. And in your life right now, in whatever struggle that you're going through, don't you know that nothing got past Him? You're not the victim. Because we have a victor on the cross. Nothing got past Him. Nothing not ever got past Him. So whatever it is that you've been through, God has been working out a plan that in the end, will benefit you, that will glorify Him, and that has a happy ending. 
The cross reminds us that God wins the war even when Satan seems to win a battle. He won a battle last week, folks. Didn't he? When you looked at the headlines, didn't you see, well, the enemy obviously won that round. No. No, he didn't, and here's why. Those precious babies whose lives were taken that day, guess where they're at right now? They're in the presence of our Father, where there's no more war, no more hunger, no more child predators, nothing like that. They're in the presence of their Father. The man that committed the heinous act is receiving judgment. And people are taking a look at the parents in the interviews and saying, I don't understand this, but I trust God. And the only thing that can make a parent respond like that is the power of God inside them. You understand that when the enemy seems to be winning, God is still very much in control and still very much working out his purpose. Where was he when this happened? If Jesus teaches us anything, he was right there weeping. But he had a plan the whole time. You know that Jesus knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus, but he still wept at the grave. We have a sympathetic high priest, a great God that is working all things. Whatever challenge that you've gone through in your life, God has been working it out because there's something that he wants to do that is going to grow you, show the world, and glorify him. So the cross reminds us that God wins the war even when Satan seems to win again. Because of that, we can be fearless. God wins. That's why David, when he went to face Goliath, could be fearless. He had already received the anointing as king. There's nothing this giant can do. Nothing's going to take away my kingship. His focus is so on God at that point that he can go out there fearless with just a few stones. Why? Because he's already been given the promise of God. He's already been given the promise of God. Let's finish our passage with two unlikely characters. Verse 38, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came, and he took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Stop right there. We meet two people. Joey and Nikki, all right? <laughs> Joey of Arimathea and Nick at night, all right? Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night and Joseph of Arimathea. We meet these two guys, and this is amazing to me. I love this passage, and here's why I love this, okay? Where are the other disciples? They're crying. They're sucking their thumbs. They're under the bed sheets. They're depressed. They're down. All right, they're the guy that they'd walked with, the one that they put all their investment and all their stock in. Well, they just saw him take his last breath. The one that could raise the dead died, and so now they're feeling kind of hopeless. They're not remembering the promises of Jesus yet. There are two bright lights that come out of here. Joseph 
of Arimathea, and this is the only time he's mentioned in Scripture. Why? Because he stepped up when it was necessary. And that brings us to the last point. The the cross gives us the strength to step up when the others are stepping out. Okay? The cross gives us the strength to step up when others are stepping out. How many of you have felt lately like kind of just stepping out? Your situations have been a lot bigger than your God lately, and because your situations have been a lot bigger than your God, they've kind of overshadowed everything. You've made your crisis bigger than your God, and because of that, uh, I'm not stepping up. Well, well, here what we have, and this is the beauty of the body of Christ, is that when sometimes some are down, you have others that step up. And so God had a purpose for Joseph of Arimathea. He had a, he had a, a purpose for Nicodemus. It says Joseph followed him secretly. But now when everybody else was afraid, Joseph steps up. Nicodemus had come at night for fear of the Jews also. But now, at prime time, he steps up. That's what the cross enables us to do. That's what the cross empowers us to do. Why? These men knew this. These men knew that this God loved them and died on a cross for them. Made the ultimate sacrifice for them. He made the ultimate sacrifice. What are areas right now in your life that you're like, okay, you know what? I know that God is calling me to this leap of faith, this step of faith, to step up at this moment. Because what will give you the strength to step up in that moment, even when others might be stepping away and fearful, what will give you the strength to do it is that cross. And what was done at that cross. And remembering the love that was shown on that cross and the fact that there is no one on that cross. We'll get into that next week. There is no one on that cross. To finally illustrate the power of the cross and the power of the sacrifice that was made. There's a video that came out in Themes and Variations a few years ago. It's called The Bridge. And uh, this is actually based on a true story. It's a uh, five-minute video. And um, so we took an abridged version of this story. And before we do our altar call today, if you have any trouble understanding what Jesus did for you on the cross, then I want you to just watch this. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. The thing that sticks out to me when I watch that video are the passerbyers on the train, not even knowing, not even realizing the sacrifice that had been made for them. You come into church today and you say, you know what? I'm going through a battle. I'm feeling unloved. I'm feeling beaten. And this shows you and depicts, at least imperfectly, a picture of a God that loves you so much that he gave his son to die on a cross for you so that he could give you life, so that you could have your life back. Came into this room today and you said, you know what? I'm coming to church today, but I don't know that I have a relationship with this God. This father desires a relationship with you so much so that he gave up his son. Abraham didn't have to do it, but God did do it, and he did it for you because he loves you. He is the perfect father. 